This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello and welcome to this week's Money and Markets podcast. I'm Danny Hewson and it won't surprise you that the fallout from Russia's invasion of Ukraine will dominate today's pod. I'll be tracking how markets have reacted over the last week, which companies have severed ties with Russia and how all those sanctions are making an impact. Joining me is our Head of Investment Analysis, Leith Kalaf. Yeah, hi Danny. I'm going to be taking a look at the suspension of some Russian exposed funds what that means if you're invested, and also looking at the surge in the value of cryptocurrency uh, that we've seen, plus calls for a ban on, on Russian transactions on cryptocurrency too. Also with us this week, our Head of Retirement Policy, Tom Selby. Yes, that's right. Stock market volatility has made some people understandably nervous about their pensions. I'll be chatting through what those ups and downs might really mean for the average pension holder And I'll also be back with Pensions Corner. And this week's question comes from someone who spent a number of years living and working in Ukraine. We'll also be hearing from Chris McVeigh from Octopus Multicap UK Income Fund, the best performing UK equity income fund over the last three years. He's been talking to Dan Coatsworth about why they've got a real bias towards small and mid cap stocks. And with so much desperately awful news around, we've got Jenny Owen to bring us a touch of light relief at the end of the pod with a potted history of Cadbury's Freddo Frog and its changing price tag. But let's crack straight on with it. Uh, And I just want to say that we're recording this on Wednesday lunchtime. So please accept that some things might have changed by the time you listen to this, because things in Ukraine are moving incredibly fast. And um, Tom Leith, do chip in uh, whenever you want, if you've got anything to say. But I'm going to start just by looking at markets They've been incredibly volatile. And I started this morning by looking at what's happened since Russia invaded Ukraine last Thursday in terms of numbers. And that's up until markets opened this morning, Wednesday morning. European markets have been down. The German DAX, 5%. The CAC 40 France, down 6%. The FTSE 100, down 2.4%. And the 250, down 1.5%. But US markets have actually made gains. The Dow up half a percent, the S&P 500 almost up 2%, and the tech-heavy Nasdaq up almost 4%. And what's been interesting is that today, European markets have clawed back some of their losses. We'll get into today's winners and what's behind that in a second. But first, I want to look at some of the companies that have seen shares battered, and it's Russian mining groups, Evraz, down almost 60%. Polymetal down 76%, both expected to be ejected from the FTSE 100 in tonight's reshuffle. Also, funds invested in Russia. Leith's going to talk a bit more about those shortly. And those beleaguered travel stocks, you've really got to feel for those travel operators. IAG, British Airways owner, down 13%. Wizz Air over on the FTSE 250 down 17%, EasyJet down 15%. But Deven stocks, which of course for a lot of people have become priority one, they've absolutely surged. BAA Systems up 24%, Babcock up 8%. And with so many people thinking about cyber defence, Dark Trace is up 30%. What is interesting is that BP and Shell, 
both businesses that have been in the news the last week, both announcing that they're divesting their Russian business ventures, expected to cost them billions. Well, their shares have actually been quite resilient. BP was down less than 7% and Shell actually up 0.4%. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. First, today, the oil price now over $111 a barrel for Brent crude. And second, many investors are relieved that the axe has been swung because being in business with Russia has become bad for business. And before we talk about that moral stance, I'm just going to bring you up to date with how things are looking this lunchtime because that surge in oil prices given both BP and Shell a boost. It's also helped mining companies Rio Tinto and Fresnillo and commodities trader Glencore because commodity prices, not just oil, but gas, metals and wheat are surging because of concern about supply chains. Because, you know, where those supplies have come from Russia... Though energy is exempt from US sanctions, there are big question marks about whether people can actually buy from Russia. There are issues with payments. Remember all those banking sanctions. There's concern about supplies getting through. And there's lots of confusion and also that big moral issue of whether doing business with Russia is even an option right now. I mean, that was a, a tour de force and clearly it's becoming increasingly untenable for, for Western businesses to do business with, with Russia, even if financially that means those businesses are going to have to take a hit, certainly in the short term. Yeah, and um, it seems almost every minute there is another business announcing that it is severing ties with Russia in some way. And literally just before I I talked to you guys, Weatherspoons announced that they were no longer going to be serving Russian beer. Such is the feeling that doing business with Russia at the moment just isn't something that Western companies should be doing. Boeing, Exxon, Apple, Nike, as I say, BP and Shell, all severing ties. We've got Boeing suspending maintenance and technical support for Russian airlines. We've got the US energy firm ExxonMobil saying it is exiting Russia. Airbus has stopped sending spare parts to Russia and supporting Russian uh, airlines. The US tech giant Apple has stopped sales of iPhones and other products. Ford Motor has joined other automotive makers by suspending operations in the country. You know, there is an increasing focus of investors in those ESG areas, really adding pressure on companies to act swiftly. And I know, Tom, you're going to speak a bit more about that. We've got Google owner Alphabet blocking mobile apps connected to Russian state-funded publisher from news-related features. We've got Microsoft saying it would remove RT's mobile apps from its Windows app store. And a lot of PR companies are severing ties as well. They just don't think that it is the right thing to do at the moment. And of course, you know, the meerkat, compare the markets, fictional Russian character Sergei has also been taken off television for the time being because they want to be sensitive to the current situation. And I think it's 
because we are so involved in this conflict, uh, and I was saying to you earlier that, you know, you go on your phone and you have relationships with people from mm. Ukraine who are fighting. My daughter's following this um, Russian, uh, this Ukrainian dad who is out there on the front line, and he does this little dances for his daughter, and it just makes it so incredibly real to mm. people sitting in in their kitchens and you know going for a, a can of coke or something like that that they don't want those businesses to have any connection at all with russia yeah but it all, it all feels incredibly ho close to home of course which i think is partly why some of those companies are are, are, are reacting i suspect in in the way that they are and, and i think that clearly over the of the short term the main focus rightly is on is on the human tragedy that we're that we're seeing in Ukraine and some of those personal stories which are heartbreaking i think over over the longer term when we think about companies and how and how they're responding to this and i think the way that a lot of companies are responding to this is is admirable whether it's driven by a, a profit motive or by a, a moral motive or or something in between but when when you think over the longer term the the idea of taking moral stances on things by by companies by funds um, or even for individuals can be quite difficult. Now, I, 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 it made me think of something closer home for me, which is which is football. So I, I've been I've been looking at the the responses of FIFA and UEFA to um, to the crisis in Russia, and while they've been criticised perhaps for being a little bit slow to act, they have taken now action to to ban Russia and ban and ban Russian teams from their competitions. But when you're thinking about taking a moral stance, one of the questions is, where do you go from there? So do you just stop at the Russian teams or do you start to look at things like Russian owners of football clubs? Um, do you go beyond that and do you ask questions about Russian footballers themselves who might not be involved in those Russian clubs, but maybe perhaps have said positive things about the Putin regime, that those footballers need to have actions and sanctions taken against them. And then you also, again, thinking about football, you, you consider some of the, the opprobrium that's going towards certain oligarchs at the moment, and I won't name them for obvious reasons, but certain oligarchs. And then you consider other countries that are involved in bloody conflicts like Saudi Arabia, who may have ownership of football clubs as well. And the question of to what extent is it is it right that those people are are brought into political matters like this and are potentially punished for it? And if we and if we come back to um, investing and companies, then the, the question of where is right and where is wrong, and it's a very philosophical question, of course, is is a tricky one. And where to draw the line is always going to be a bit of a challenge. And and I spoke to one fund manager yesterday who was talking around the challenges of. ESG and um, uh, the kind of the kind of funds that should remain ESG, and they and they pointed out that there now might be a question mark, for example, around um, the screening of arms companies, where perhaps before you might uh, uh, an ESG fund ESG fund might have said that any arms company is, is not going to fit into our fund because we don't we don't agree with arming people and war and all the rest of it. Now you may have some fund managers suggesting that actually if those arms are being supplied to a country like Ukraine, which is fighting an attacker like Putin, then perhaps that's actually a good form of arms dealing. And so you can see how these things can become quite 
complicated, complicated and quite quite sticky when you're getting into the the morals of investing company and the morals of where of where companies are going to do business as well. Yeah, I, th- I think that's absolutely right, Tom. Is it is very complicated, and I think perhaps also thinking about some of the. Um... You know some of the the services that particularly the tech companies are providing to Russia as well. Um, you know we, we've had some 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 tech companies, Apple saying that they're not going to provide iPhone sales, Google saying that they're um, you know not going to allow um, state sponsored media to take uh, ad revenue. But actually, probably some of the services that these companies provide, I'm particularly thinking perhaps Google Search and YouTube and things like that, are actually a very kind of useful way for obviously kind of people in Russia to actually stay up to date with what's actually happening in the world. And so there is also a question, I guess, of how far companies should be going. Um, but I think this is a question that's going to kind of swirl swirl around for some time and, and, and we'll probably muddle our way, our way through what is, as you say, a very kind of complicated picture about what companies and what, what funds should be doing. Uh, elsewhere in kind of what's happening in, in the world of funds, we have seen some Russian funds these are these are UK funds which are investing in Russia um, suspend trading, which um, doesn't come as a huge surprise, seeing as the um, Moscow Stock Exchange is is still closed, and um, so you know those funds are unable to to trade out of of their investments, and as, as a result, I said to investors, look, obviously given it, in light of what's happening, um, you're not able to buy or sell uh, units in the fund, so. You know that's that's kind of going on. It's it's not it's not a very big part of the whole investment universe. If you think about what where Russia sits into kind of you know the investment world, it's an emerging market. Um, so you know it's not kind of a big developed market like the US, um, like Europe, Japan, and the UK. It's an emerging market. So you know potentially it's it's held within emerging market funds. But if you think of, if you look at the kind of MSCI Emerging Market Index, which is kind of looking across all emerging markets, Russia currently makes up around two percent of that, um, and that that's actually falling quite quite significantly as we speak. Um, at the beginning of the year, it was worth three and a half percent. So, the funds that have suspended have been ones that are specifically focused on Russia. Um, and on Eastern Europe, and therefore have a very high weighting towards Russian equities. So those kind of funds are are extremely um, specialised um, and likely to be part of the the portfolio of of, of sophisticated and, and well diversified investors. And obviously, what's going on at the moment is an ex- extreme example. Um, you know, kind of, of 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 political risk really coming home to roost in in those specific portfolios. But it also perhaps does highlight why investors who are are looking to kind of invest in emerging markets, um, you know, with all the kind of political risk that that, that sometimes involves, um, that you know, actually when they do that, they should do that through broad funds, which are, which are diversified across countries and regions, so you don't have all all your eggs in in one basket. Um, and, and, and therefore, you know, have a much more kind of balanced portfolio where, where you know, hopefully you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't see anything happening like we've seen at the moment. And a question that I've been asked a number of times on social media um, is when these Russian assets can be sold. And I'm particularly thinking of, you know, the, the big assets. So, you know, a BP stake of Rosneft. Um, Will there actually be a buyer for those things? Um, would a Chinese investor or perhaps a Middle East investor be interested 
or has Russia become uninvestable for the foreseeable future? And as, as you were both saying, it it's an incredibly difficult conversation right now. It, it feels fairly straightforward um, because of what we're seeing in Ukraine. But as part of a bigger picture with everything else that is going on in the world, it is quite complicated to make those decisions. And it is something morally that everybody is going to have to reach those decisions on their own about what they do in the future. Because, of course, we could get 12 months down the line and, you know, everything pretty much goes back to the way it was. That is, of course, assuming that this conflict reaches a quick resolution and who knows, it's it's too complicated to sort of wrap your head around at the moment. But of course, you know, we've we've been in this situation before where people have been saying, you know, Russia's behaviour is outrageous. And yet, you know, 12, 24 months down the line, people are back in business with Russia. Do you think that Russia will become uninvestable for at least, you know, a couple of years, Leif? Well, I, th- I think it is at the moment. I think, as you say, there it kind of de- it depends on 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 how the crisis uh, unfolds from here. Um, I mean, it, it seems extremely unlikely at the moment. But you know, if you had a situation where there was some kind of rapprochement between the West and and Russia, and you know, for, you know, sa- sanctions were lifted, um, and you know, there was a kind of peaceful solution. Um, uh, then I, I think perhaps you know Russia maybe comes back on the table. Like I say, I think that particularly at the moment, um, you know, looks looks unlikely. But um, you know, um, things things are obviously moving very fast. Um, in terms of kind of you know whether there are kind of buyers for for, for assets, then I think you know potentially there are. Um, you know, you kind of mentioned kind of Russia Russia having you know, allies in in China, India, and and, and the Middle East. Um, I think the issue is, of course, that you know anyone who's um, you know selling a, a distressed asset is going to do that at a very, a very low price. Even assuming that you've got you know prices, um, um, what with the Moscow stock stock exchange being closed, so you would expect that you know if and when the exchange opens, um, there'll be some trading and there'll be a lot of pain reflected in the share prices. You know who knows whether that will 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 lure in some some buyers. Um, you know, from perhaps regions that have a different view on what Russia is doing to our own. Um, but I mean, at the same time, we don't know what kind of restrictions are going to be in place on on, on buying Russian and, and, and selling Russian securities. Um, you know, whether that's from the Russian government themselves, you know, what are they going to do? I mean, they have been talking about, um, you know, not allowing uh, foreigners to sell um, sell assets. Um, you know, what, what sanctions are going to be in place at that time? You know, how, how are, are people going to be able to transact? And, you know, you know, I guess in, in the extreme, whether you know, Russia just decides to cancel assets kind of held by foreign o- owners, you know, if, if things escalate from here. So um, I think we're going to have to wait and see on, on, on that front. But, you know, certainly I say how, how things look at the moment and the divestments that we are seeing, um, you know, invest, you know, ru- investing in Russia is becoming, you know, a much it was already to start with, you know, a fairly small part of the investment universe. And it's becoming even 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 smaller now. Yeah, on that um, news came out last night that President Putin had reportedly signed a decree that will temporarily prevent foreign investors from selling assets and withdrawing funds from the country in excess of $10,000. But this volatility, Tom, is going to make an awful lot of people worried about their investments, particularly their pension pots. 
Yes, that's right. I've already had lots of questions um, in the past uh, 48 hours in particular um, around, around this subject. So pension investors might understandably be nervous that the conflict, conflict in, in Ukraine and the political uncertainty that that's causing across Europe might hit their retirement plans. Um, the, the main thing to remember here, and it's um, something that something that Leith touched on there, is that the vast majority of pension savers, be they invested via automatic enrolment in their workplace or if they've got a defined benefit plan or if they've got a self-invested personal pension, um, their, their retirement plans will, will be invested in a diverse range of assets, either, either directly or through a fund manager. And, th- and those assets should be aimed at delivering returns over the long term. So while what's going on in Russia is clearly extremely worrying and extremely dangerous and will have impacts on certain companies and certain regions in different ways, provided you've got your, your pension invested in that diversified way, then the impact should be extremely small. Um, Laid mentioned the MSCI index there. If, if you look at um, the announcement from the National Employment Savings Trust to today, their chief investment officer confirmed that they're going to be removing all all direct exposure to, to Russian assets, but they confirmed that that makes up only 0.2% of the entire portfolio. So there will be some impact there, but the impact's going to be very, very small. And that, of course, that impact's going to be over, we're talking about the impact over the course of, you know, a couple of weeks here, whereas people's pension pots should be invested ideally over over decades. And if you look at what's happened to, to stock markets, you mentioned some some have been up, some have been down. Generally, they've been pretty resilient in the face of clearly what is a period of extreme political uncertainty around Russia. So is there anything that investors who might be worried, is there anything that they should be doing? Um, I'd say at most investors might want to double check that they're comfortable with their investments and the risks that they're take, taking and of course where their where their money's invested in light of this but in most cases I think the the best thing to do would be to to sit tight and be, and be confident in your long-term strategy. Now some people are moving um, cash and um, to perceived safe havens. Uh, in the past, people have automatically thought of gold, and we have seen the gold price rise. But when we talk safe havens in 2022, some people are thinking cryptocurrency, and we have seen the price go up late. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, since the invasion, we've seen crypto prices surge. It's not entirely clear what the reason behind that is. Um, you know, it's possible, as you say, Danny, that, you know, crypto and particularly Bitcoin is now thought of sort of digital gold. Um, so there might be some kind of association there as a safe haven. Um, you know, that doesn't really hold much water given how incredibly volatile cryptocurrencies are and how much money you can lose by investing in them. I, I, I you know, kind of caution anyone who thinks that they are a safe haven. Um, and I think there might also be, you know, something else going on, which is kind of the, you know, the, the collapse of the ruble. Um, uh, and maybe some Russians looking to store money in, in something which might hold its, its value better, perhaps looking to Bitcoin. And maybe even some people outside of Russia who are speculating that that, that is going to happen uh, and that actually people will 
uh, in Russia will try to find some sort of solution to um, you know the, the huge crash in the currency by moving into Bitcoin and and, and thereby kind of stoking up up, to pro- up the price. So, not entirely clear what's what's um, you know driving the Bitco- Bitcoin price. You know, this is something that in the past has seen huge gains based on something that, that you know Elon Musk has put on his Twitter feed. So <laughs> we need to we need to keep that in mind. And you know, anyone who's thinking about um, you know, taking the plunge, the message is only only put a very small amount in and only amount that you are willing to lose in its entirety. And you were mentioning there about potentially some Russians wanting to use it, obviously, to, to try and protect their fund. And there's been big pressure on crypto exchanges to block transactions with Russia. Some people think that maybe it could be used as a backdoor to move money around the world when other options have been blocked. But so far, there's been resistance. Yeah, and I, and I think kind of the the crypto exchanges are kind of are making the point that they're complying with sanctions on on individuals, but um, there's no legal requirement for them to kind of block ordinary, um, you know, Russian users. You know, in in the same way as perhaps we were talking about earlier. You know, you know, Google is still providing things like YouTube and um, um, uh, and search um, to 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 Russia. So the the exchanges are basically saying. Um, you know, we're, we're providing our service as well. And of, of course, I guess the issue with that, as as you point out, Danny, is that, you know, does that then provide kind of an anonymous backdoor um, for, for, for transactions to take to take place? Um, you know, I suspect probably on a big scale in terms of big businesses using it, probably not, but perhaps at a smaller scale, it, it can. So, um, again, you know, one of those... Um, you know, areas of monetary ethics, which we will probably have to find our way through. Um, you can kind of see both sides of, of, of the coin, but obviously regulators are very keen um, to ensure that, you know, the, the, the sanctions um, that have been in place are not being circumvented in any way. Now, I'm just going to stress again that we are recording this um, Wednesday lunchtime. So, you know, things may have changed an awful lot, but I guarantee that we'll be talking more about this on our podcast next week. Um, I just want to touch on a couple of other stories from markets before we move on. Um, There's been a lot of speculation uh, around about uh, the potential sale of boots. We know that Boots the Chemist has been put up for sale. We know that there has been a huge amount of interest from a number of private equity um, uh, groups. And um, apparently one of them has now pulled out, potentially because the price tag was simply too high. But because of that, there's been a lot of speculation that if a buyer doesn't do a deal, then we might actually see Boots back on the FTSE and with a valuation rumoured to be around £10 billion, it could become the UK's second biggest flotation after mining giant Glencore. Now, of course, you know, following COVID, a lot of us have been using chemists an awful lot more. We've seen the value of them an awful lot more. So it is quite uh, an interesting um, proposition. And um, certainly we know that Asda is one of those bidders with skin still in the game. I just wanted to touch on Target as well. Um, US um, discount retailer absolutely seen profits surge 
um, revealed 1.5 billion in quarterly profits, nearly 7 billion for all of 2021. But the key thing that a lot of people took out of this earnings update and the reason that shares were surging is that they did expect to see supply chain pressures ease later in the year, though, of course, you know, we can't uh, factor in what's going on between Russia and Ukraine at the moment. And there have already been reports that um, the issues there have added to supply chain problems. And just finally, Music Magpie. Um, I don't know if either of you used Music Magpie before. Not on my radar, I no. not. <laughs> I actually did sell a whole load of CDs during lockdown because I did, you know, that that thing that a lot of people did, sort of took a look at the house and thought there's too much stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, they did very well um, over lockdown, but unfortunately, they're not expecting to see the same kind of growth going forward. And because of that, um, it has seen... um, Shares fall. We're talking about you know consumer trends sort of equalising, um, and they actually fell to a pre-tax loss of nearly fifteen million during its last financial year, as turnover slipped below a hundred and fifty million. So uh, um, certainly something to watch out for. Before um, we move on to Tom's pensions corner, it brings us nicely to an interview that Dan Coatesworth has done with Chris McVeigh, manager of the Octopus UK Multicap Income Fund. It's the best performing UK equity income fund over the past three years. A 44% total return, which includes share price gains and dividends. The fund is looking in different places of the market than many other equity income funds and has a bias towards mid and small cap stocks. A lot of investors, if they looked under the bonnet of income funds, they perhaps would see things like life insurance companies and, and oil producers. But just looking at your fund, you've got things like construction, media, asset management. Now, you could argue that these sectors see waves of of good demand, but also bad. So therefore, earnings perhaps aren't very consistent. Why have you looked at these sort of sectors and sort of positioned the portfolio in this way? We we haven't positioned the portfolio with any specific sectors in mind. Um, We we take a bottom-up approach to investment um, construction portfolio portfolio construction. Uh, we look for companies which can deliver that, that medium term um, growth potential to deliver that areas growth and capital growth in, in excess of the market. So the portfolio that we, we, we have constructed here in the stocks that you see and the sectors that we pulled out there are very much based on, um, on the attributes of the underlying investments. So some exciting stocks within um, all of those sectors. You mentioned media, one of our largest companies is, is Next15, a relatively modest dividend payer at this stage. Uh, but um, it, it's one of the companies that we, we classify as a, as a capital growth satellite. So the portfolio itself has got a core of, of positions, which um, will be roughly about 70% of the, the assets within the portfolio. And they'll be um, the, the, these companies with great long-term growth characteristics I talked about earlier on. Uh, but we bolster um, the, the performance of the portfolio with um, capital growth satellites and also income generating satellites. The next 15 sits from the capital growth satellites. Um, it is a media company, a marketing services company. Um, I think it's delivered five earnings upgrades um, on, on, on the run over the last uh, year or so. 
uh, and it remains an attractive um, multiple as you look forward as well. So these are exactly the sort of companies that we're looking to, 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 to find in the portfolio that can bolster the capital performance. Um, and we're very happy to buy them on a, on a, on a very much a stock-specific basis. As I say, the sector allocations, it's very much, much bottom-up. Therefore, it's, it's driven by um, those individual stocks that we see the best opportunities. Yeah. So Halfords is actually one of your sort of big positions in the fund. What, what do you like about that business at the moment? Yeah, Halfords, um, it's a business in transition, we think. It's a business which plays into some very nice thematics of the growth and cycling. Obviously, that's been fantastic for them um, over the over the, the, the COVID period, um, if you can say that. Uh, but also has got, um, um, we think, significant growth within its auto centres business as well, as it, as it grows that both from an organic and an inorganic basis. They did a deal, obviously, just before... Um, before Christmas, I think it was, um, where they raised capital to, to, to bolster on an acquisition that we think is sensible. They bring these companies in, they've got a very good tech platform now as well, which can drive efficiencies and drive margins, which I think is, um, again, underappreciated. The stock itself is sitting on a, on a single-digit earnings multiple. Um, it's, got, it's got free cash flow yield of, of, of uh, on the forecast, these are consensus numbers, but you look ahead to next year or, or um, the, the, the year they're about to to, to enter um, from a financial year perspective to so March year end. It's on a 10% free cash flow yield, and that underpins a very attractive uh, dividend yield of, of just, just close to 4%. Um, and if you look at the consensus estimates as well in the market um, uh, for the year um, to, to, to 24, um, we're only looking at 2 3% um, earnings growth uh, from a, from the, the, the analyst consensus expectations there. So again, very modest expectations. I would expect them to beat um, uh, both from, as I say, the organic and, and, and uh, the, the acquisition-led growth that they have. So I think it's, a, it's in good shape. Um, and uh, yeah, we're quite excited by it. I presume a business like Halfords is um, facing cost pressures. Certainly, if, you know, if, I, if I go in there and I want to buy a bike and they've actually got something in stock which has been quite rare over the last couple of years um but you know it they seem to need more mechanics and if they're going to more down the servicing electric vehicles you know in the in the years to come they'll need more specialist staff and of course that would you know push up their wage bill is that is that something that worries you uh, you know sort of long term yeah look with any people business and and halfers are reliance on, on their staff ultimately to deliver that good service there are going to be challenges but um, as I say we, we think this business is well managed we think the management team and, the, and their focus on building a, a, a tech platform that can enable um, the, the staff to, to work more efficiently and more effectively uh, go, does give them an element of, of protection um, from that but ultimately it's, it, they've got to drive the top line um, in order to, to offset cost pressures and um, you know we, we're comfortable that the numbers in the market are, are of a a level that we would expect them to to deliver, if not if not beat over time. So, it, yeah, th- there's always going to be any challenges right now with regard to to staff and efficiencies and stock. Um, but we're seeing, we're hearing signs that 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 um, supply chain issues are are starting to ease. You're, you're seeing some data coming out, you know, some data coming out in the, in the last week, looking at um, the, the 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 ships sitting outside LA ports, which was obviously during the pandemic and, and last parts of last year, uh, you were seeing massive log jams with regards to su- supply chain issues. And that, we're starting to see those 
those easing, which is which is a positive. Yes, we're not out of the woods yet, and, and yes, there'll be further bumps on on the way. I'm, I'm sure from a supply chain and logistics perspective, um, from a, from a from a global perspective, um, but we're we're starting to feel a little bit more comfortable there as well. So you're absolutely right to highlight these challenges. But I think with the management management's focus on on uh, on on synergies, the management's focus on on on, on tech, um, the business we think should still see margin progression. Yeah. So and, and just finally. Do- Investors increasingly are being told to sell down bits of their portfolio if they're looking to generate an income, rather than simply just focusing on dividend-paying stocks and therefore income funds. I mean, do you think selling down bits of your capital is a wise strategy, or you know that's not the way forward? You should go. That that strategy, I think, has has been talked around around the last couple of years, particularly given the performance of some funds which perhaps are focused on on global tech, which has seen fantastic performance. And, and therefore, the argument always was, always had, had been, that people should be buying these fast-growing companies and, and, and selling down and, and, and using that to, to supplement their, their income. Um, I, I, that, that plays against the, the more traditional equity income space. There is obviously concentration. There, uh, there is potential for, for you know dividend growth to be challenged in some of these names as given the dividend cover. Um, some other challenges amongst the more traditional dividend paying equity income, UK equity income um, names, you know, there's a lot of concentration amongst many of these funds out there. Therefore, there's a lot of correlation um, amongst their, their, their top positions. There's a lack of growth amongst many of these companies. I think what we are doing is we're taking a, a sort of diversified approach. We're sitting with a portfolio of companies which we believe um, will grow earnings and grow dividends ahead of the market through the cycle. Um, yes, they may not be delivering the, sort of the, 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 uh, the high levels of growth that you've, you've seen some of the, the tech names in the States in particular delivering, but we're not sitting in the multiples that some of these stocks are sitting on as well. So I, I would say as a happy medium, our, our, our approach, our, our more diversified approach to, to generating UK equity income is something investors should consider. Um, it's dividend growth, but it's underpinned by earnings growth, and it's a sensible market valuation, and it can deliver you some nice capital performance in the period as well. So I, I think we are sitting in the, the right spot. Brilliant. Well, Chris McBay from Octopus, thank you very much for your time. Daniel, thank you very much. Chris McVeigh, their manager of Octopus UK multi-cap income fund, talking to Dan Coatesworth. Uh, Tom Selby is still with us. It's time for another Pensions Corner, Tom. And this one's from Tatiana, who's wondering if her state pension here in the UK can be increased because before 1997, she actually lived and worked in Ukraine. First, she took a gap year, then worked when she was a student and then worked for 17 years after graduating. She's been working in the UK since 1998 and has 25 years national insurance contributions. She wonders if her work years in Ukraine could count as her general work time here in the UK. She's 61, so she can now pay contributions for five more years, though she might wish to retire earlier. It means she'll never pay the full 35 years to qualify. So what should she do, Tom? Yeah. Um, so firstly, um, I guess, given everything that we've talked about in, in Ukraine, it's probably worth saying I hope that Tatiana and all of her family are, are OK and are coping in what, are, as I suspect, are quite stressful 
circumstances. Um, to the to the question, um, so I'll start off by explaining roughly how the UK state pension system works and how entitlement works, and then we'll go on to the specifics of, of Tatiana's case. Um, so since April 2016, people have built up an entitlement in the UK to the flat rate state pension, which is worth £179.60 per week in 2021-22. So that's the current tax year. But you need a 35-year national insurance contribution record to receive the full amount and a deductions made for every missing year of national insurance contributions you have. You need at least a 10-year national insurance contribution record to qualify for any UK state pension. So Tatiana will qualify for some UK state pension. The flat rate state pension normally rises in line with what's known as the triple lock. That means it increases by the highest of average earnings, inflation or 2.5%. Although, of course, for um, April this year, that earnings element has been removed and set to come back from the following tax year onwards. Lots of people who reach state pension age before the 6th of April 2016, so that's when the new flat rate state pension was introduced, will we'll have a, pension, a state pension that's made up of a couple of elements, so a basic element and an earnings-related element. That might be called something like SERPs or S2P. It's changed a few times over the years. The basic state pension is worth £137.60 per week in the current tax year and also rises in line with the triple lock. Now, finally, in terms of how that system works, and then I'll get on to the specifics of Tatiana's question. So millions of people will have built up rights under both the old state pension system, so the pre-April 2016 system, and the new system as well. So where this is the case, the DWP calculates what's known as a foundation amount, with the amount, the amount that you receive being the higher of two amounts. So the higher of the amount you would get under the old state pension rules and the amount, the amount that you would get if the new state pension had been in place at the start of your working life. So that's to ensure that whether you built up state pension entitlement under the old rules or the new rules, you'll, you'll end up with a, a fair amount under the reformed system. Now, in terms of Tatiana's, Question. So if you live if if you lived or worked in a European Union country or Switzerland, then any social security contributions in that country should count towards your UK state pension entitlement. However, unfortunately, as the UK Ukraine is not in the EU, and obviously that's something that's been part of the political debate around Russia and Russia and uh, and Ukraine recent recently. Unfortunately, that's not going to be the case. And so Tatiana's UK state pension will likely be based on her UK national insurance record only. It, it is possible to buy national insurance contributions to fill gaps in your record and to boost the value of your state pension up to the full flat rate amount. The, the deadline to do that is the 5th of April each year, although you're usually only able to fill gaps from the previous six tax years. Um, now, that may not be the, the answer that Tatiana was was hoping for, but that, that's likely to be the situation. Um, might be worth checking out a couple of, um, of links. So you can you can check your check your state pension on gov.uk forward slash check hyphen state hyphen pension. That might be useful. And if you search for, for voluntary national insurance contributions and deadlines on um, on Google, then you may be able to find more information around that as well. 
Thanks, Tom. Don't forget, if you have any questions that you'd like answering in our Pensions Corner, do send them in. You can email podcast at ajbell.co.uk or, in fact, get in touch about anything, any suggestions for people we might talk to or topics to cover. As I say, um, it might be Lent. Apologies for anyone who's given up chocolate for a few weeks because Jenny Owen is here to talk to us about the iconic Freddo Frog. And Jen, anyone keeping track of rising prices might remember, and I do remember, that when the frog was first released by Cadbury, it retailed for 10p, not anymore. Yeah, absolutely. So inflation has been in the news for a while now. And having a single item you can track can help put the wider picture into perspective. I'm not exactly sure of the origin story, but Freddo frogs have always been picked as a supermarket item of choice to track inflation. They've been around for over 100 years, and I'll just be going back about 30 years, although maybe Maybe the history of Freddo's could be an entire podcast further down the line. In 1994, Freddo's were relaunched in the UK at the price of 10p. All was fine until 13 years later, in 2007, when it jumped to 15p. Three years after that, a Freddo costed 17p and it was up to 20p only a year later. In 2014, fans were left dazed by the price of a bar leaping to 25p. And in 2017, the outrage got to fever pitch when 30p was needed to get a Freddo fix. Campaigners fought tirelessly. And a year later, Cadbury's had no choice but to cut the price to 25p, appeasing fans all over the UK. The price has remained at 25p, although Tesco's did a special week a year or so ago when they dropped the price to a nostalgic 10p, but who knows what might happen in the next few months or years. Make sure you keep an eye on those Freddos next time you're in the shop. When you said earlier that it had been out for 100 years, just off the back of me saying that I remembered when they were first released, I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, my, my adult brain must be 100 years old. But no, 1994, the re-release, that's that's what it was. That's the one, yeah. No, no, we're not, uh, we're not here suggesting you're a century. <laughs> the Freddo Index, I, I really like that. That, that. that made me feel particularly nostalgic, actually, because 1994, I would have been... Ooh, what, eight, nine years old, something like that. So I was in peak Freddo territory and the, the idea of the be, them being any more than 20 pence, frankly, fills me with dread and confusion. But thanks very much for that, Jen. Um, great trip down memory lane. And that's all we've got time for in this week's podcast. As Danny says, do get in touch with any comments or questions and we'd love it if you'd leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, Dan and Laura are at the helm. Dan's going to be chatting to Zerid Osmain, fund manager of the Martin Curie Global Portfolio Trust about all things metaverse. Till then, thanks for listening. Thanks. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.